0: Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It is truly a blessing to be able to be here again this morning. Just thought I'd share a few thoughts or or a few things from my experience over the last couple weeks. Three weeks ago this morning, I was feeling pretty good, but was one of my last days of recovery from having COVID. Two days later at night, I developed that day, I developed pneumonia. The doctor felt like it was a secondary infection due to uh, weakened lungs due to the COVID infection. And I ended up, I, I just couldn't get my breath. Got up, got out of bed, and was in an effort to go out and try to sit in a chair to relieve, hopefully relieve my lack of oxygen, ran out of oxygen to the point that I ended up on the floor. I learned a couple of things that night. One is COVID and the associated issues that it brings is serious and let's treat it that way. I also learned, as I reflected, after my, my breathing was evening out a little bit, I was, I was able to, wasn't, wasn't quite as much stress. Reflected on that experience. I'd never experienced anything like that before, where I just felt like my body was crying out, screaming out for oxygen, and my lungs were not able to provide it. And I felt things just kind of shutting down, so to speak. And I reflected on that. And you hear of people that say that at the end of life, I'm going to get right with God. And I'll tell you from personal experience, when your body is shutting down because it's screaming for oxygen and your lungs can't provide it, You don't have the opportunity to pray and to get things right with God. Today is the day to do that, not at some future time when you have maybe but moments to live. Another thing I learned is the blessing of a good godly wife who is there to bow over me and pray when I could thank you. So three Sundays ago, I was on to preach It was Easter Sunday morning. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to be here or not, so I began to prepare, was not able, never finished that message, was not able to be here. But I'd like to bring that Easter message this morning. Hope you all are okay with that. You know, Easter is the day that we celebrate the greatest event that ever took place on the face of this earth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We celebrate at Christmas Jesus coming to earth as a baby. We study his life and his teachings, the the three years of his life that he spent ministering Here on this earth, in teaching, we study that and we try to apply it to our lives. We look in awe at his suffering, his sacrificial death, what he went through on the cross. But without his resurrection from the dead, all of these other things would have little meaning. Jesus' resurrection was the proof that he was who he said he was, he claimed to be God's son the resurrection proved who he was it it verified that he was truly God's son and it also verified to us that he truly did have does have power over death and over satan his resurrection shows us that sin and death has been conquered and that it no longer has dominion over those who accept the provision of Jesus sacrifice for our sins it is it is an, an a, amazing it is an astounding proof of of what of who Jesus was and what he has done for us I want to think about what the resurrection means for us. But first, I want us to consider what led up to Jesus' resurrection. And I want us to understand clearly, and I'm going to repeat this at the end of the message. I want us to understand clearly that for there to be a resurrection, there needs to first be a death. You cannot have a resurrection unless there has been a death. And in the case of Jesus, there was no doubt about his death. We know the story well. I'm not going to go to the scriptures and read it, but I just want to talk about some of the things that Jesus endured for us, what he endured to get to the point of resurrection. Jesus was arrested there in the garden of of Gethsemane sometime during the night. Thursday night, Friday morning, it was probably middle of the night or early morning. He was, he was arrested by the Jews, taken to the Jewish leaders and given a trial. And they condemned him. But the Jews did not have the ability to put someone to death. So early in the morning then they took him and handed him over to Pilate for his official trial, the trial that would lead to a condemnation to death. And it was at the hands of the Romans that Jesus' suffering really began. When he was in the custody of the Jews, he did endure some some physical and verbal abuse. But his real suffering began at the hand of the Romans. He went on trial before Pilate, and at the end, or close to the end of that trial, was where this physical suffering began for him. Pilate turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be scourged and abused and then crucified. The scourging was a form of punishment done with a whip known as a scourge, which was a whip of multiple thongs embedded with hard pieces of metal or bits of bone or something like that, and they would use it to, to whip a prisoner, and it was designed to not only to, to sting, but to tear the flesh. It was so brutal that people were known to die from scourging. It was so brutal that it would tear the flesh to the point that some victims were disemboweled. It was also at this time that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on Jesus' head, no doubt with a lot of force, and proceeded to strike him on the head, driving those thorns deep into his brow. That was the abuse that Jesus suffered before being led out to be crucified, and as they led him out, the Apostle John says that he went forth carrying his cross. The other gospel accounts say that they forced Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross, so evidently Jesus went forth carrying his own cross and didn't have the physical strength or stamina left after the physical abuse to make it to the point of crucifixion. And they pressed Simon of Cyrene into carrying. The cross. Once they arrived at Golgotha, the place of crucifixion, Jesus was subjected to the cruel, one of the cruelest deaths known to mankind. His arms were spread out wide, and I'm sure they stretched them to the full extent, and nailed to the cross beam of the cross. And his feet then were nailed to the upright. And We're told that this position is a very excruciating position with the weight of the body hanging on the arms. It stretches the muscles in the chest and it does not allow you to breathe which I can identify with. It doesn't allow you to breathe without pushing up to relieve that strain of the weight of the body hanging on your arms. So every crucified person As they hung there, for every breath they took, they had to push up to relieve that pressure and take a breath. And then when they needed another breath, again. And imagine doing that as you have nails driven through your hands and your feet, hanging there. This is how Jesus hung there on the cross. from approximately 9 in the morning till 3 that afternoon when he cried out, it is finished, and gave up his life. Sometime after Jesus gave up his life willingly, the soldiers came with the orders to break the legs of the other victims to hasten death. Now remember, you needed your legs to push up so you could take a breath. That's why they broke their legs, because once their legs were broken and they didn't have the support to push up to take a breath, asphyxiation set in very quickly. That's when they found Jesus already dead, and one of the soldiers, rather than breaking his legs, thrust his spear into Jesus' side, bringing forth a flow of blood and water. I wanted to go through those details that we all have heard before, because I want us to have this morning to have a clear picture of the body that was buried that day. After all of that abuse, after those six hours approximately of hanging on the cross, and after the spear piercing his side, there was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. when Joseph of Arimathea took that body down and buried it, there was no doubt that Jesus was completely dead. There's also a very remarkable prophecy regarding all of this abuse that Jesus received. In Isaiah 52, 14, it says this, And many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than that of any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, I believe that the body that was laid in the tomb that day, that evening, was so marred that it bore little resemblance to the man that the disciples had followed for the last three years. You think about the, the, the physical abuse that Jesus suffered, coupled with this prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus' body was we would say mangled. But then came Easter Sunday when the women were greeted by the angels declaring that he is not here, but risen. And on that first Easter Sunday, if you look at all the accounts and the different times that it talks about Jesus appearing, he appeared to Mary, to the two on the road to Emmaus, to Peter, as well as to a group of the disciples that were gathered together. So he was alive. The angels proclaimed it. The grave was empty. And Jesus himself appeared, I believe it was five times, if you count up all those I mentioned, four or five, on, on Easter Sunday. There was no doubt that Jesus was alive. He had risen, there had been a resurrection. Now I invite you to turn with me to Romans 6. I want us to think about how this applies to your life and to mine. Romans 6, and I'd like to read the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. There's a lot in these 14 verses, and we're not going to be able to unpack it all this morning. But we have a beautiful passage here that tells us what the effect of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection should have on your life and on mine. Why did Jesus endure the suffering and the abuse that he did? so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin that ensnares us. And this is a clear picture of that. First thing I want to do is look just a little bit at the last verse we read, verse 14. It says, For sin shall have, not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Here again we see that Jesus' sacrifice was made in order to break the dominion of sin, the bondage of sin. He says, previously we were under the law, a law that condemned. It told us what sin was, but it didn't give us any power to live above sin. And unfortunately there are those who claim that grace is something that somehow allows God to overlook our sins because of of Jesus sacrifice on the cross. But I believe that we see in these verses described something vastly different than God overlooking our sin. Rather than grace being something that God allow, that allows God to overlook our sin, grace that is that is spoken of in these in these verses here is Unmerited favor and power from God that allows us or empowers us to live above sin. We need to understand, and I've said this before here, but we need to understand that God's purpose in sending Jesus to suffer and die was to conquer sin, not to overlook it. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. That as believers were not to sin, simply to give an opportunity for God to exercise his grace. But rather, we're to live lives that are dead to sin. But going on in this, in this passage here, in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about baptism. And we need to understand that baptism in itself has no merit the baptism he's speaking of here is a, is a it's a transfer it's a transaction when we come to Christ we are baptized into Jesus Christ into his death into his burial it's becoming it's us becoming one with him in these things it's us taking on his way and his nature and it's something that occurs When we surrender our life to Him and ask Jesus Christ to come in and be Lord of our life and surrender fully to Him. When we talk about baptism, we think of water baptism. Water baptism is an ordinance. And what is an ordinance? An ordinance is an outward expression of of an inner truth. So when we come to the church, and we come and and practice with a new believer, we practice water baptism, we are symbolizing what has already taken place in the heart of that person who has surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when he's speaking of baptism here, he's not speaking so much of the act of water baptism, but of the transfer of us transferring the control of our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where uh, that, that interchange, that taking on the nature of Christ, is where grace comes in. Because it's not, as I said earlier, something that just simply allows us to live in sin and God overlooks it. But rather it's the enabling power of God to take on the nature of the sinless Christ and to die to self, and to live above sin. It's not that we never ever sin, don't ever sin again, but we are not under the bondage of sin. That's the theme in this passage, that we're to become like Christ. You know, everybody wants to become like Christ when they they reach the end of life. In other words, everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to be blessed with eternal life. In him. But if we want that reward, we must also be like Christ in this life. I want us to consider the references in this passage that tell us that we are to be like or in Christ in his death and resurrection. Now I want to look at, at the death side first. Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? When when that transfer takes place of of the control of my life, is surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am am baptized, I am am taking on his death. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. With death comes burial. It's a putting away. Verse 5. For if we have been planted, and that word planted is, uh, King James I think is the only version that uses the word planted. It's It's interpreted correctly, but it has the idea of being united. Uh, One commentator said, used the illustration of of grafting, of of a a scion being grafted into a a parent plant. The idea of of that united, being united. So if we have been planted or united together in the likeness of his death, so we're supposed to be united with him in his death. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Our old nature, that that nature that wants to sin, wants to do what self wants. When we surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, it needs to be crucified with him. In verse 8, now, if we be dead with Christ, he's just simply <clears throat> stating it as a fact. We have, we're in Christ, and so we're dead with Christ. And then verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. We're to reckon or consider our old man, our old nature as dead. It's clear in this passage that when we come to Christ and accept him into our lives, we're taking on in a spiritual sense what Jesus Christ took on in a physical sense. Jesus was tortured and crucified and buried physically. His earthly body was mutilated. It was hung on a cross until it was dead, and then he was buried. And that's a picture of what we need to be doing in our lives spiritually. It's what we need to be doing with our fleshly nature, that nature that desires the things that are contrary to the way of the Lord. We've all inherited a sinful nature, we're all prone to sin. And without God's grace to live above it, we're bound to sin, we're helpless we're doomed to live in it. in that sinful nature, those sinful desires that have us bound are what we're to put to death. When we truly, and in my notes I have underlined truly, confess Jesus is Lord of our life. Because brothers and sisters, there's too many people today in this world and even in our churches, I believe, that are confessing Jesus Christ, but they're not truly and wholeheartedly confessing and surrendering to His Lordship. When we truly confess Christ as Lord of our life, and let me back up, I was there. I was there. Confessed the Lord, Jesus Christ, but not fully surrendered. By God's grace, I'm more surrendered than I once was, but not as surrendered as I hope I am in the future. when we truly confess Jesus is Lord of our life, we're saying that just as Jesus submitted to the physical, his physical body to that mutilation, crucifixion, and death, and burial, we're to submit our fleshly desires, our sinful nature, to the same treatment. Mutilation, crucifixion, death, and burial. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1531 said I die daily that's what we're called to do with our sinful nature we're called to die daily it's not just a once and done but it's a continual death to self and to sin invite you to turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 9 I want to look at something else that the apostle Paul said Verse 27, he speaks, starting in verse 24, about uh, using the analogy of running a race and winning a prize. And he ends up here by saying, But I keep my body under and bring it under subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And the idea here is that of bringing my body under is putting it in subjection. And I just printed out about ten different translations, how they translate this, because I think it helps us to understand what Paul was saying about what we need to be doing to our sinful nature. I'm not going to say what, what versions all these are. I'm just going to read down through them and listen to the descriptive terms that are used here. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. I beat my body and make it my slave. I pummel my body and subdue it. I buffet my body and bring it into bondage. I buffet my body and lead it captive. I bruise my body and keep it in subjection. I bruise my body and make it my slave. I hit hard and straight at my own body and lead it off into slavery. I give blows to my body and keep it under control. I think that these different translations here of of what Paul is saying helps us to understand the degree of self-discipline and death to the flesh and to the sinful nature that Paul was talking about. He isn't talking about a half-hearted self-denial Or a one time event. He's speaking of an ongoing. Focused effort. To subdue the sinful nature. To put it to death. Christ didn't crucify himself. He didn't didn't beat himself. and, And crucify himself. And bury himself. But that's what you and I have to do. We have to choose daily to crucify self to put it to death I also noticed the last part of that verse Paul's concern was that without this self-discipline he would in the end end up being rejected by God Paul wasn't talking about a grace that causes this loving God to overlook sin. He was talking about a grace that enabled him to subdue the powers of sin and self in his own life that would enable him to live a holy life in preparation for meeting God. This is the way of Christ and the way to glory. Now, the similarities between our spiritual lives and Christ's sacrifice aren't limited to us being like him in his suffering and death. The similarity continues with the promise that we'll be united, excuse me, that we, as we are united with him in his suffering and death and burial, we will also be united with him in his resurrection. And I'd like to look, there's a few a number of times here that it that it tells us. Here in Romans 6, that, we'll be united, that if we're united with him in his suffering, that we'll be united with him in his resurrection. First one is in verse 4. Talks about being buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We can experience that same life, that new life through, through Christ. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we've been you, you remember I said united with him in his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We share in his death, we'll share in his resurrection. Verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, if we're dead, not if we are half dead, if we're dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. It's a package deal. Just as Christ had to suffer, to be crucified, to die, and to be buried, to experience resurrection, you and I as well need to subject our sinful nature to the suffering, to death, to burial in order that we can have that future hope of an eternal resurrection, or a future, uh, future resurrection. I also believe that there's two aspects to the resurrection that's promised to those who are in Christ. We all have the hope of that future resurrection when as we're promised that the dead in Christ will rise to meet him. And to be united forever with him in all eternity. That's one aspect of the resurrection. But I also believe that there's a present aspect as well. As we put to death and bury the sinful nature, we experience new life today, new life in this life. <clears throat> Jesus said in John 10:10, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Was Jesus talking there about life in heaven? Maybe, possibly, partly. But I believe Jesus was talking about so much more than that. He was talking about an abundant life in this life on this earth. Now I've said before, every time in my life that I've tried to do things my way instead of God's way, I've been disappointed. When when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we open ourselves up to His way, which is... The good way. It's the abundant way. The way of life. We experience the resurrection power when we open ourselves up to Jesus' way. When we accept Jesus as Lord and we place ourselves, instead of under the bondage of sin, we place ourselves under the bondage of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we experience new life. In essence, we experience the resurrection when we do that. We put to death that sinful nature. We bury it with Christ. And then we're raised to a new life in Him. Living for Him and not for self. Living for a life of holiness instead of a life of sin. Brothers and sisters, that's grace. Not the power of, not, not, not something that God just overlooks the sin in my life, but the power to live above the sin that so easily besets us and drags us down. The power to put that nature to death and to live for Christ. Now I'd like to think back again a little bit to the description I gave of Jesus' sufferings and crucifixion. He was scourged, crucified, His side pierced. He was buried. And as I said, from Isaiah's prophecy and from the descriptions we have, his, his visage, his, his appearance was marred more than that of any man. I want you to consider, I want you to get a picture in your mind of what that would be like. And I want you to consider in light of what we've just looked at here in Romans 6, how does your old man how does your fleshly nature look in comparison to how Jesus looked after his suffering? Has it with Christ suffered and died? We're supposed to be united with Christ in his sufferings and death. And I've said, you know, for him it was a physical death, for us it's a, it's a spiritual death to sin, to self and sin. And I just ask, does your old man bear the marks of suffering and death? To use Isaiah's terms, does, has your old man's visage been marred? We talk about how Christ willingly went to the cross. He willingly suffered these things for, for us. And I ask, are you, are you willingly taking your old man, your fleshly nature to the cross like Christ? If we're, if we're going to be united with him in, in, in his death and burial and resurrection, we need to be willingly taking that sinful nature to the cross. Are you keeping it there till it's dead and ready for burial? I had to think about, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was taunted by the Jewish people. They said, or the Jewish leaders, they said, if he's truly the son of God, if you're truly the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. And you know, Jesus had the power to do that. But if he, had, if, he had, if he had come down from the cross, would there have been a resurrection? No. There would not have been a resurrection. Even though He had the power to come down from the cross, He didn't because His goal was not to save Himself. His goal was not to prove that He truly was the Son of God. His goal was to complete his suffering and to experience death and burial so that he could in turn experience the resurrection. If Jesus had come down from from the cross in an effort to prove who he was or to avoid some suffering or to avoid death, we'd have no resurrection. We'd have no resurrection power. We'd have no hope. In the same way as we crucify the old man, we have the power to come down from the cross and save ourselves. We face the temptation and we think, I've suffered enough or it's not worth it or I want to have a low earthly pleasure. We think these kinds of things. But without the suffering, the death, the burial of our old self, there's no resurrection. What's your goal? Is your goal to experience the resurrection power in your life today as well as in the future? Then we must keep that old man on the cross. So in conclusion, I ask, where are you at in suffering and dying to self? Is your old man suffering and dying or is he thriving? Do you allow him to come down from the cross occasionally for some pleasure? This morning I want to challenge all of us, myself included. All of us, challenge us all to walk the way of Christ. To identify with Him. To be united with Him. To put to death the old man, the fleshly desires. And for us to remember that... that For there to be a resurrection, for us to experience the resurrection power today in our lives, for us to have a hope of experiencing a resurrection to eternal life, there needs to be death. And that death must be the death of self and sin. That's how we will experience the resurrection power that we are so excited about when we celebrate Easter. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to suffer and die to your to self in order to experience that tremendous power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? It's it's our power to have, but we must Just as Christ paid a tremendous price physically, we as well have a price to pay if we're going to experience that resurrection power. May God bless each of you in doing that.